0: So, someone just asked about my last name being Doe. Yes, it is a real name. I'm a real person. (laughs) My great-great-grandparents were Native American from the Seminole tribe, and somehow we ended up with the name Doe because we didn't have a last name. So, that's the story on on that. I get jokes all the time. It's okay. Uh, When Jesus gave his first sermon, the story is recorded in Luke chapter 4, and Luke, the evangelist, uh, tells a story that Jesus goes back to his hometown, and it's the Sabbath. And he gets up in the synagogue, and someone hands Jesus a scroll. And he reads these words from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind." to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. His first sermon was met with mixed reviews, uh, to say the least. Some people were like, that's really interesting. Other people were furious For him to make such a claim, the religious leaders were so upset that they dragged Jesus out of the synagogue. They took him out of the town to a cliff, and they were ready to throw him off a cliff. First sermon for Jesus, that's how it went. People were ready to to, to kill him for what he said. As a a pastor who preaches, I find something relieving about my sermons and criticism that I get. It's never been to that extent. Uh, But Jesus said something that was radical enough that people were ready to kill him. And what's interesting is the scroll that was handed to him was a scroll written by a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah was alive some 700 years before Jesus lived. So as Jesus pulls out this scroll and he reads these words, these are ancient words by the time Jesus gets them. And they're words that were written written in a genre of writing that was called prophetic. Isaiah was a prophet. And Isaiah, as a, as a prophet, uh, something about him is his name, his very name means that the Lord saves. So think about like that. What is the meaning of your name? His name means the Lord saves. And Isaiah, as a prophet, had the ability to see through appearances into Reality and tell the people of God, here's what is really going on in this world. He could see through appearances into reality. And because of that, like all of the prophets, he was very misunderstood in his day. Isaiah, a couple of things that that we know about this scroll is, one is that Isaiah, he wants to show us more of God and more of ourselves than we've ever seen before. And as Isaiah is writing to the people of God some 700 years before Jesus, This is what he wants them to know. He wants them to know more about God and God's heart for the world. And he wants them to know more about themselves and how they should travel through the world. The second thing is that Isaiah, he wants to lead the people of God into a life that outlasts their earthly expiration date. He's he's pointing towards some, some future destination. And he wants, this has huge implications for the soul, the souls of the people that he's writing to. But he also knows that the people that he's writing to are wrapped up in a legacy of how they live here on earth. And so he's writing to them, casting this vision for a future, for them to be a part of something that live, outlives their earthly expiration date. Isaiah is this prophet that is writing. And as I kind of hear these words from Jesus and have thought about who we are as a church and our future, one of the things I, I, I thought it would be interesting to do is to, to, to go through the book of Isaiah for the next four weeks. Because what we find is that Isaiah, so much of his message as he's writing and casting this vision of what God's doing, he's talking about people who are living in this, these desolate places, this wilderness, this desert. And he's talking to them about living a kind of life where they can thrive in the midst of the desert. And we live in a desert, we're a desert city church. We're desert people. And I want to explore these words of Isaiah for the next four weeks. Uh, a couple of things just to kind of outline this book as we jump into it is that really Isaiah is 66 bo- or chapters long. And if you were looking at it, you could really break it up into two sections. In fact, some people say that you could even call it 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. The first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, are dealing with, and this was written in the 700s uh, BC, they're dealing with the Assyrian threat. So the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, um, northern kingdom has gotten in trouble, it's been conquered. There's this huge Assyrian threat, people that live around this town called Nineveh, maybe you've heard about it. Uh, Really, really dangerous people. And Isaiah is writing, warning his people that these Assyrians are coming in and something's going to happen and it's not going to be good. And the people that he's writing to at the time are rebellious because they've been kind of craving kind of worldly security They've put their hope in all sorts of things that we would call idols. And they've turned their backs from God. And the actions that he's explaining in the first part of Isaiah, he's talking about how God's going to purify a remnant through trial so that these can be the people that God desires. And the message is to return and rest, and you shall be saved. But you are unwilling. I put this uh, here Marcy always gets mad when I put a ton of stuff on the screen, which I did on this one, so sorry. But it helps kind of lay out the series. The second part of Isaiah is uh, from chapter 40 to chapter 66. And this what's interesting is this part of the book takes place after the Babylonian exile. It's around the year 500, which means it's like 150 years after the first book. And you might be thinking, well, what's going on there? Like, did Isaiah live 150 years? Like, what in the world? How... So there's all sorts of speculation about, did Isaiah write the second part? Was it written by his disciples? Um, one theory, which I thought was interesting, is that when Isaiah writes it, he's looking into the future, and he puts the scroll in some sort of like time capsule. And some 150 years later, those who are kind of like disciples of Isaiah and they're prophets of God, open it up after they've gone through this crazy experience of exile, and all of a sudden, they're, they're seeing these words that Isaiah wrote 150 years ago, that everything has come to fruition, And they're starting to realize these words must have been inspired. There's something about them that must have just been divinely inspired. The audience for the second half of the book is God's defeated people. The Assyrians have come in, and now the Babylonians. The God's defeated people under worldly domination. And the actions that God is consoling a discouraged people in exile, and he's preparing them for a promised salvation. And the message is, the glory of God shall be revealed to keep justice and to do righteousness. And the second half of the book starts pointing towards this idea of the servant of God that would come into the world to bring about salvation. The servant, as we understand it, is that he's pointing towards Jesus. Some people would say that Isaiah is the fifth gospel. Written some 700 years before the time of Jesus, pointing everyone towards the servant figure that would come into the world to bring about salvation. So Isaiah's kind of broken up into two chunks over hundreds of years. But I think what's interesting for us is that Isaiah has hopeful expectations for God's people. And those hopeful expectations, they, they tend to transcend just an isolated place. All of us as God's people receive these words with inspiration to be a certain kind of people here and now. And so as we look over the next four weeks, I want to look at these hopeful expectations from Isaiah and start with this passage in Isaiah 43, 16 through 21. These are the words of Isaiah with his hopeful expectations. He says, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished and snuffed out like a wick. So that's quite the entry. Here's what the Lord says. Oh, this is who God is, by the way. Do you remember your history? You were once slaves in Egypt, and you cried out to God, and he came and he delivered you, and he set you free from the things that held you captive. Through these miraculous works, he took you through the water, and the things that enslaved you, these Egyptians, the water swallowed them up. You found new freedom. This is the God who moves in your life and has done great things. When Isaiah starts to talk about the words of God, he starts to remind the people of who God is and the character of God. And what's interesting is what we find is the way that God works with the people of Israel is never just like an isolated event. This God that frees them from Egypt, this isn't just a one-time thing. This is a pattern of God. This is how he works. He frees people from things that enslave them. And Isaiah is reminding the people this. Your history, this God who saved you in the past, who has redeemed you, He is the one who is speaking to you now. But then he switches gears and he says this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Well, that's interesting. He just reminds us of the past, of who God is, what God has done, how God has been faithful to us. But then he says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. There's something brand new happening here in this time, in your time. God is up to something new. We find that the character of God never changes throughout Scripture, throughout history. But part of the character of God is he never runs out of new ideas. And he's doing something with the people in Isaiah's day that is brand new, it's a new work, new miraculous things are happening. And he's saying, do you perceive it? Sometimes when we look back to the past, it can hinder us for the future because we long for the good old days. We long for the way things used to be. It's kind of fun as a church plant, we don't really have good old days because this is all brand new. Uh, And part of that's a gift, but part of that is we, we miss the good old days, things that, that create these rhythms in our life and memories together. Marcy and I, our kids were starting school on Tuesday. We were looking at these first day of school pictures of our daughter Sophia. She's going into sixth grade this year. And we were looking her first day in kindergarten. And we were just like sick to our stomachs thinking about how much we missed that looking back. There's something about that that it's hard to, we, we look back with longing for the way things used to be. And we forget that right here in the present moment, there's something amazing happening with our children. And it's hard. It doesn't mean that we can't look back and enjoy that. But don't let us rob, it, rob us from our present moment. The other thing is sometimes we look back at things and we get really discouraged. We look back at things and we see how we feel like we've been disappointed by people, how we feel like we've been disappointed by God. And it does something inside of our heart that makes it hard to move forward and to hope for a new day. We look back not with longing. We look back with heartbreak. And we think, how could God ever do something again in my life? How could I ever open up my heart to do something new again because of the past? God tells us to forget the former things, to not dwell on the past. It doesn't mean we don't appreciate what's happened. But there's something brand new happening here and now. God never runs out of new ideas. We don't focus on the past. And he starts to talk about this new thing that God is doing here in the midst of the people. And he says, Do you perceive it? And the the kind of thing that is happening, he he uses the imagery of of springs sprouting up in a wasteland. We live in a desert, it's summertime. We know how hot the scorched earth is, we know how hard it is for things to grow. We know how thirsty the ground can be, how thirsty we can be. And yet in the midst of that, something flourishing starts. God says something miraculous is happening. Where there used to be a wasteland, there is now life. And life is coming. If, if there was something that we want to know that God is saying to us about Isaiah is this, through Isaiah, that God wants to pour life into you. This new work of God that is happening, God wants to pour life into you, to fill up the places that feel uh, desolate, to fill up the places that feel dormant, the places in your soul that are withering. God wants to just pour life into you. A couple years back, back in 2013, um, my wife and I went through a journey, kind of a desert experience. Um, We're church planners. Uh, my, my dad was a church planner. Um, I feel called to be a church planner, establishing a new church community. And my wife and I had an opportunity to go do that in Dallas and moved to Texas for a couple years. And it was really hard. We had all these dreams, these visions, these things that we felt like God called us to do and got out there and realized, one, I was probably way too young to try to lead a church. Two, we were in over our heads, Ill, ill-equipped. Three, like the, the, we just realized we're, we're Phoenicians. Uh, we're, we're different, and um, ended up after two years of, of working really hard, everything kind of fell apart, we came back home kind of with like our tail below, you know, we, we, it was just devastating and, and embarrassing, one of the hardest things we've ever gone through, just feeling like we let so many people down, feeling like we let God down, feeling like God let us down, there's all sorts of different things when you go through a season where you feel like things don't work out the way that you want, and I remember like going through the season and it was the first time I felt like I was just in a wasteland. Like, my soul had withered. There was no life. Uh, It was a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of trying to explain ourselves. And as I was kind of going through this season as a pastor, I remember thinking, like, when can I be a pastor again? Like, when can I dream again? When can I lead again? So kind of go into ministry counseling and try to, like, figure out kind of what happened and uh, looking back at it, it was such a great experience for my wife and I. You can never, When you go through these desert experiences, you never enjoy it until you can look back on them. But I, one of the things is I was writing through my journal. Um, I was kind of reflecting on that experience. And I wrote this down and then had a mentor speak into my life. And, and I wanted to share this. He said, I said, you have all sorts of dreams. As I'm trying to process having a dream crash, you have all sorts of ideas on how to create and build and organize and impact and serve And you can fill out all of them, and Jesus still loves you. And you can never see them materialize, and Jesus still loves you. And you, His love is marvelous and wonderful, boundless and limitless. Sometimes you have uh, to just rest in that truth that God wants to pour life back into you. You go through these disappointments. You don't think, and life is disappointing. I remember when I uh, was going through this experience, what tends to happen is when we face disappointment, we get real cynical. Our hearts get bitter and brittle. I had this older kind of uh, cynical pastor. who used to always tell me, life sucks and then you die. I'm like, wow, that's a wonderful message. (laughs) Uh, But oftentimes what happens is, is life is relentless. Life is disappointing. Life is hard. People fail us. Uh, We have these dreams, we have these desires uh, that we want to see come to fruition, and they don't. Uh, We we go through all sorts of uh, setbacks career-wise. We go through uh, setbacks physically, setbacks in relationships. Life is just relentless. It's hard. Yet Jesus still loves us. He still wants to pour life into us. I had this mentor say this. God wants to renew us day by day, to take those hurts, to take those dreams and visions and plans Those desert experiences, the awkward periods. Time you felt like the only one. The time you felt betrayed. Time you felt like no one understood it. Time you were like, if people could just see. You loved and the love was not returned. You gave and it just disappeared. You spit yourself and no one noticed. And it just fell to the ground. Why try again? Why do it again? But God will take it and renew it. God will make it new again and again and again so that you won't be brittle and bitter shooting down everyone else's dreams. And he said, give your tired old heart to God and he gives you a new one. The sad thing is we stop asking and imagining. We lose heart. Our hope for the future gets beaten out of us. But C.S. Lewis reminds us there are far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. And this is the Christian hope. A new heaven, a new earth, a glorious future. This is Isaiah's message to the people. You've been devastated. Your soul feels like a desert. Your heart feels like a wasteland. And God just wants to pour life back into you because we have this glorious future. We're people of resurrection who can flourish in the desert experiences of life. Doesn't mean that life's easy, but it means that God will do something new and if you let him, if you give him your, your old and weary heart, he'll make it new. His, ner- his mercies are new every day. We have a glorious future because of who God is. We have a glorious future because of who Jesus is and what he's done in this world. For us as we read this passage from Isaiah, forget the past. Don't dwell on the things, the good, the bad, all of that. It's happened. But God is doing something new here And now, this present that propels us into the future. God is doing something new. Do you perceive it? It will be miraculous. It will be like a stream coming into the desert to give you life. God wants to pour life into you. Second thing, when I think this is what it means for us as a community, is that God wants to pour life into this community, into North Phoenix. God wants to pour life into us, into our neighborhoods into our schools, into our workplace. God uses his church, the body of Christ, to do that. What we do matters. He pours life into the community. And I believe that he wants to do something new in this community. Last week, I uh, had the opportunity to go fishing. Told some of you about this story. I almost died a few times on the boat. Uh, it was pretty wild. There was a shark involved. Uh, eight-foot swells. We got attacked by pirates. It's just, yeah, the story keeps getting better. Um, you know, but I got I got home from that on a Saturday night, and I uh, was trying to, you know, recover from this trip, getting ready to turn around and go to church the next day, and had kind of got wind of the the devastation of the mass shootings last week. And some of you, uh, I'm sure everyone has has kind of gone through the process of seeing everything that's happened and um, it I wasn't really until Sunday night that I was able to kind of sit down and just, like, see what happened. And every time this happens, it reminds me that we live in a world of evil and of death and of destruction. And here's what I found myself doing in this process. As I had, like, finally been able to kind of recover and, and hear the news, uh, I, I didn't want to engage. Because here's, in Jared's world, what happens when these devastating mass shootings happen. I go through the shock. I go through the horror, um, the, the pain of it all, that, that this would happen. And it, that takes something from you emotionally. And then there seems to be like this other response of anger, of, of how we're supposed to respond to it. And everyone's angry. We go from grieving to anger. And everyone wants you to respond a certain way. And if, if they don't, there's this projection of anger towards you. And I'm like, how do I respond? I'm going to make someone mad somehow, and I, I'm all thinking of all this stuff in my mind, like trying to process the pain of this, and, and then, like, I, and, and I, I just know it's exhausting every single time, and I found myself saying, I just don't want to go through this journey again, and then I realized when you don't want to feel anything, that is like the definition of being desensitized to it, and I was like, wow, I've just become desensitized. This is like the loss of life, and I don't want to enter into it because it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. I've been desensitized to it, and I was reminded, it's almost like God was saying, you can't be desensitized to something like this. It's devastating. Fathers and uh, mothers have lost children. Children have lost fathers and mothers. This can't be the new normal. We live in a culture where where this just happens all the time but it can't be the new normal. And we try to think of like what to do about it. And we live in strange days. The world that we live in is a strange time. I was reading, there's a book called Strange Days by Mark Sayers, and one of my favorite kind of pastors and authors speaks about this, and I found this helpful. He says, in a time of social, political, and cultural chaos, Jesus promises to transform this old world into a new world. Marked by comprehensive, everlasting, flourishing, and peace. Scripture urges us not to sit on our hands until that day, but rather roll up our sleeves as a countercultural, prophetic, life-giving minority that offers glimpses of the world to come to the world that is. Perhaps there has been no time such as the present one for the church to live out her vocation, drawing on the resources of Christ's kingdom to leave the world better, then we found it. And I started thinking like, this is the mission of the church, to bring life to communities, because the world is full of death and destruction and evil. And as we gather together, we put on display the world to come for the world that is. We're desert people who thrive in the midst of the wasteland, bringing life to places that are dead, to bringing healing to places of destruction. What we do as a church matters. We're salt and light in an evil world. And God wants to pour life into this community, and he wants to do it through the churches that say, Lord, use us to be your body here. I think that God wants to do something brand new in North Phoenix, brand new in this community, something that might, be, might take miracles Something that might be like bringing water into a wasteland. But I'm excited to be a part of it because I believe that this matters. A community of hope, a life-giving community of people, transforms the world. We're the people of the resurrection and Jesus is with us. We're the body of Christ. So a couple of things that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks as we look at Isaiah is what that means for us as a church we're about to enter our fifth year as a community, which is exciting. Um, if you know the history of this neighborhood, no church has lasted this long. Um, so we're ready, kind of like, a, we're special. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason why there's no established churches in this community. Uh, it's not an easy place to establish a church. We feel called to bring life here. Um, we're going to be talking over the next few weeks, uh, kind of our next steps. What does it mean for us to, to get our own place I love the cafeteria. I love setup up and tear down for a season. Uh, we've uh, just this summer opened up our, our, uh, our first account for land and building campaign. We'll have a document going out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've started the process with the community to define something uh, that would be more permanent for us. Um, it's not going to be easy, And yet I think that God's going to do something here that hasn't been done before. God's going to do something new and fresh. And it's going to be miraculous, and it's going to bring him glory. And I'm excited to be a part of it, because I think this community needs a life-giving church. And we're inviting you to be a part of it, to be these desert people who flourish in the midst of the wasteland. That's something I can give my life to. Uh, So we'll have more to come on that. But today, as we think about uh, this life that we're living... I don't think that we can be a blessing to the community until we allow God to just work on our own lives. And today, Tim's going to come up and close us with a time of, of prayer and worship. And wherever you're at today, whatever you're feeling, maybe you feel like your own soul's withering. Maybe your heart feels brittle and bitter. Maybe you have all sorts of cynicism and skepticism towards the church, and you're not sure that you're ready to just jump in with the community again my prayer is this, that you would allow God to just pour life into your heart and into your soul and that from that we could pour life into this community. We close each uh, time together with communion. This is something that is sacred to us. This is our story of the gospel, that God loved the world so much that Jesus came into the world physically with flesh and with blood and his body was broken up broken open, his blood was poured out, and through the breaking open of his body, the pouring out of his blood, life was poured, life eternal for people. At the church, we are this living Eucharist. We break ourselves open, we pour ourselves out, we proclaim this message of God, and we bring life to others in the process. Today, as we close with the time of communion, we practice open communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. If you're not, we'd love to talk to you about what that means. It means that we're resurrection people, people of hope, and we believe God's doing something about the brokenness in this world. God's doing something brand new today and he can do something brand new in your heart. So let me pray, and when you're ready, you can move to the communion table, and then Tim will close us. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. We thank you for these messages of hope. Lord, that you have not given up on the world, but that you're making the world new again. And Lord, that you haven't given up on us. That you're making us new again. With everything that we've go through, Lord, with our disappointments, with our discouragement, with the things that make us feel like we're dead inside, that our soul's withering. We ask that you would just pour life back into us today. That you would refresh us with your spirit. That we may be a church that pours life into this community that we would be a light in the darkness, Lord, that we would push back against destructive forces, that our lives would matter because we're joining you in the salvation of the souls of this earth. But work in us first today, Lord. Let us encounter you at the table. Let us encounter you with these songs. And we pray your blessing on us. In your son's name we pray.